0: There's layers of risk, systemic risk, opaque risk, miners, tether, counterparties, price manipulation, regulation exchange hacks, hard forks, BitMEX death spirals, exit scams, (laughs) other scams, scammers, GBTC nav trade unwinds, SIM swaps, code bugs, false rumors, true rumors, market illiquidity, Brad Sherman's punk ass, Satoshi's (laughs) million Bitcoin. And that's not even close (laughs) to an exhaustive list of the risks that are present. But over its history, Bitcoin's up like 11 million percent.
1: Welcome back to The Breakdown with me, NLW. It's a daily podcast on macro, Bitcoin, and the big picture power shifts remaking our world. The Breakdown is sponsored by Nexo.io and produced and distributed by Coindesk. What's going on, guys? It is Friday, February 5th, and today I am so excited to share an interview with Travis Kling. Travis is the chief investment officer at Ikigai Asset Management. Before that, he was a long-short equity portfolio manager at the 90 billion billion.72 hedge fund. But honestly, I don't need to go through Travis's credentials. You guys know him. Travis is one of the most thoughtful observers, not just of the Bitcoin and crypto space, but of the macro landscape as a whole. Now, I've known Travis for a good long time now, and he only does podcasts in his own words when he really has something to say. And this week, as you'll tell, he has something to say. So without any further ado, let's dive into the conversation. Travis, welcome back to The Breakdown. It has been way too long. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing great. Good to be here. Feels good. Uh, this is going to be a fun conversation, uh, just a little bit going on twenty twenty one is off to a start that i don 't think uh, uh, any of us uh, any of us could, uh, could could be mad about but uh, let 's start with i think I want to start this week something you and I have been talking about going back and forth texting about for the last couple of weeks everything around GameStop. I know you, like me, feel like this is a much more significant moment, let's say, than just a bunch of guys on an internet forum happen to like a stock, even though they end all their posts with, I just like the stock. But when did you start paying attention to this story? And when did it become clear to you that it was about way more than GameStop?
0: Um, I mean, I don't know. I don't know when the stock started moving enough. You know, it's probably two and a half weeks ago that had popped up on my radar. I mean, look, the Wall Street Bets thing, you know, we've been paying attention to for a while. I mean, it, you know, you know, it was in full blast last summer and the whole kind of gamma hedging uh, upward spiral thing that they started doing. And, and I remember last summer reading about that and thinking about how fascinating that was that they had you know, kind of found this, this little thing And then it it comes back around specifically in the context of GameStop, Uh, you know, probably two weeks ago was the first time I ever heard Melvin Capital that was, uh, you know, wrapped up in this. And then you start seeing the kind of short interest figures coming out of uh, prime brokerages, you know, sell-side research firms, and the price is running up hard day after day, and you know, pretty immediately it was clear that there was a little guy versus big guy, you know, that that was the situation here. And that, you know, the little, the little guy had a name and, and the big guy kind of had a name too. And, uh, you know, I think when Robin Hood, you know, there's, there was conjecture, two weeks ago the first part of two weeks ago about you know kind of how this was going to play out it was getting a lot of steam rapidly wall street bets the number of of, of users in the in the forum was you know going as parabolic as as game stock price you had a bunch of the other names that were heavily shorted that started ripping in sympathy and then you hear about the uh the bailout of Melvin capital right around the same time as Robin hood removed the ability for a single day to buy any stock, but left in place the ability to sell stock. And then, and then the next day opened back up buying on GameStop AMC and some other stock stocks, but only in these tiny sizes per per account. And I think as all that was kind of unfolding over a few day period of time, it just was immediately apparent to me that this was an astonishingly unique and pure expression of populism. And that the significance, you know, was massively transcendent of just a short squeeze on GME. And that it had the potential to be a really big deal and that it remained to be seen what we, the people, were actually going to do about it going forward.
1: So that's I mean, that's a perfect place to to take the conversation next, because I feel like and I felt like for the last few days, like media loves the David versus Goliath story on the way up, but they can only tell that story for so many days before they're sick of it. And it felt like the beginning of this week, they sort of shifted to, uh, you know, one, it didn't you know, like it's kind of over now. The dream is dead. The retail investors kind of moved on two just blaming the kind of billionaires like Chamath who are egging them on or three retreating to what I feel like is the most common strategy for traditional financial media, which is basically saying like, oh, no, you don't actually understand what's going on. It's not that Robin Hood was being wrong. It's that they had all these dynamics and they're too complicated for you, you know, like the kind of traditional patronizing. You don't understand the inner workings of this. And that's exactly why you shouldn't be playing in this space. Uh, but I feel like there's, you know, the, the question remains how we're going to tell the story of this. And I think it's pertinent because we've got hearings coming up, right? And we've got like some, you you know, the the, the government apparatus, the legislative apparatus, is now introducing itself into this conversation. And you had a great line uh, in your uh, in your recent investor update that I pulled out: GME, AMC, and others are trading just as much on fundamentals as the 17 trillion of negative yielding debt worldwide. And I think this is in response to one of the lines that we've heard from some politicians, like Elizabeth Warren, is the stock market's supposed to be about fundamentals. Let's get back to fundamentals. Or people on cable news say. Like, you can't tell me that this is a fundamental, you know, there's fundamentals behind this stock movement, right? So I'd love to just get your take on kind of these narrative battles around it, but also that, that specific line, I just think is so, so poignant.
0: Yeah. I mean, what are fundamentals in, you know, stock markets right now or, or any markets, any financial market right now? Like, like what are fundamentals? I mean, we are in the <laughs> middle of an everything bubble, Right. And, uh, you know, Tesla trading at 28 times trailing revenue, or uh, American Airlines trading at 343 times forward earnings, or pick a metric, without exception, those are made possible by uh, the fact that we're in the midst of the largest monetary experiment in human history, which is quantitative easing while simultaneously running Increasingly larger deficits on top of increasingly untenable debt levels. And that's why anything is where it is right now from a price perspective. And where all of those asset prices pick an asset, where the asset prices go from here, are going to be overwhelmingly a function of what happens with those same monetary and fiscal policies. So GME was just one more sort of mutant child of quantitative easing. Uh, and, and the, the, the thing is that, that makes this so so populist at its core is that, uh, rich people figured this out a long time ago, rich people figured out that quantitative easing makes asset prices go up. Doesn't really cause that much headline CPI price inflation, at least not yet as it's currently envisioned, but, uh, you know, the monetary and fiscal policies that we have in place make more or less all asset prices go up. So that when uh, the market downturn came along in March of last year and the Fed had already tipped its hand about their willingness to do more. And I always remind people, we cut interest rates three times before anybody ever said coronavirus, We started doing not QE, QE before anybody ever said coronavirus. Um, And so when that came and Powell pulled out the the bazooka, rich people totally doubled down. And that was a great call. That was the correct call. And so by and large, rich people did really, really well in 2020. Um, And Wall Street bets, the little guy, the everyman, figured out a way to jump on this same train as well. And they did it last year as well too, Dave Portnoy, stocks only go up. That was, the, that was the point of all of that. That was the, his realization. Uh, that was the same thing that, that uh, you know, the status quo and, and sophisticated market participants had figured out a long time ago. But now the cat's kind of out of the bag And uh, that's the setup that put GME in place, made it possible.
1: So I think this is super important because, again, so the, you know, like I was just saying, we're going to have these regulatory hearings around GME and Robin Hood specifically, but they are almost like an opening salvo of how a new administration and a new setup in the government is going to address economic issues. And there's kind of this, uh, I mean, if you use FinTwit and Bitcoin Twitter as a microcosm, right, a lot of the debate is roughly, let's call it, the Bitcoiners on one end of the extreme, the MMTers on another end of the extreme. It's obviously more complicated than that. But it's a, a, a reductively a set of people who have identified this sort of never-ending asset price everything bubble as driven by uh, by kind of the, the the zero to negative interest rate policies that is coming home to roost and creating all these problems. And on the other side, there's a sense that that can continue. And perhaps even just what matters is, uh, there's almost a sense that it doesn't matter if rich people keep getting richer, if asset prices keep going up, if that's the cost of full employment, right? Because you have, at the Fed, you have two mandates, right? Market stability and full employment. And one of the things that I feel like is very uh, is going to be really challenging over the next couple of years is we have to ask questions about not just how do we get to full unemployment, but what society do we live in? Is it okay to have a society where everyone has a job, but the things that assets get you getting out of the rat race, being able to buy a house, being able to afford college are, uh, Excluded from people who have jobs, and it feels like if you draw these kind of lines to their logical conclusion, it's hard not to see that as a as an increase, you know, ever increasing kind of gap. So I, I don't know. It feels it feels like you know part of what made the GME thing so compelling to people is that. It was like the group that was predestined to sit on the no assets, but maybe you get a job side of things, charging like a barbarian horde of classic, you know, style into the space of the other and saying, we're not willing to just leave that party to everyone else. We're going to try to get ahead too. We're going to try to have our time and our money work for us rather than the other way around.
0: Look, you know, wealth inequality has been, you know, a problem for a couple decades, Uh, I don't wanna put 100% of the blame on monetary and fiscal policy because that's not accurate because technology hollows out the middle class and globalization hollows out the middle class specifically in the United States. But monetary and fiscal policy uh, is a major driver of of wealth inequality in the United States. And uh, when you have Jay Powell and, and Janet Yellen publicly state otherwise, it's, 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 it's one of the most egregious untruths that uh, th- that you'll ever, ever hear either one of them rip. And, uh, you know, we'll see how the history books sort of write about the the uh, refusal to acknowledge, uh, you know, the role that monetary and fiscal policy has played in that wealth inequality and the uh, the 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 effect that has been so uh heavily in place and this populism movement uh with with gamestop just being the latest incantation of it but it started you know at least four and a half years ago with brexit it was the same it was the exact same sentiment that put donald trump into the white house in the first place and uh Social unrest, you know, I think is the release valve from this. That that is the, uh, uh, you know, ma- managing social unrest is likely going to be the governor that monetary and, and fiscal policy uh, uh, guideline, uh, you know, policymakers are going to be most using going forward. And uh, it's just going to be, it's just going to be front and center. Uh, And, 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 and what makes within that context, what makes the GameStop situation uh, uh, so important is that it bubbled up to being ubiquitous. I found myself a week and a half ago on the phone with my, mother that's from a small town in College Station explaining to her what gamma hedging is, right? <laughs> and the main takeaway from people that don't have, don't know anything about financial markets, about the GameStop situation is that the little guy found out a way for once to beat the big guy, was beating the big guy, and the big guy called in backroom favors uh, so that he'd stop getting beat by the little guy. And that sort of thing, when it happens as out in the open, as it just did, serves to um, plant seeds or water seeds that were already in the ground. And, and those uh, serve as the motivation and the willingness to push for action that eventually leads to change, and, and that's where so much of this dovetails so uh, incredibly well into what we all spend all of our time doing, uh, which, is, which is why does decentralization matter? Why, why is decentralization important? And in the same way that you need, you know, for, for Bitcoin, a non-sovereign digital store of value, to, to gain increasingly more adoption, you need monetary and fiscal policies to be increasingly more egregious. It's not, it's not just about that they're already bad, they gotta be bad and getting worse. And that's what pushes people into an alternative store of value like Bitcoin. It's what pushes people into consideration. I mean, we saw that was Paul Tudor Jones, that was Stanley Druckenmiller, that was the institutional, I mean, we saw Eriki guy, and we got a bunch of uh gold bug baby boomer lps in may and june and july of of last year that had no interest in bitcoin and then they saw what the fed and treasury did in march and april and all of a sudden they care and so you 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 need that uh that 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 push uh and 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 the same is true for other use cases for decentralization uh it's, if, if, if you're concerned about a social media platform banning certain users for speech that the executives of that social media platform find unbecoming, you can build a decentralized social media platform on top of smart contracts. If you're worried about AWS banning certain users for speech that the executives find unbecoming, you can build a decentralized AWS on top of smart contracts. If you're worried about an exchange changing the rules to benefit the big guy at the expense of the little guy, you can build a decentralized exchange on top of smart contracts. If you're worried about how the money is being created and spent, you can build a money Bitcoin on top of smart contracts.
1: It felt, I think, to a lot of us in this space who had made our way over here, like, almost like we we see your rebellion, but can we interest you in a conversation about what you're rebelling towards? Absolutely. And uh, I, I'm certainly not, and anyone who listens to this knows that I'm not the type of person who's going to go be like, your GameStop trade is stupid, you know, or anything like that. I would never kind of get into someone's asset choice, especially because it felt so clear that it was about something bigger. However, like... Of course, the 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 people who of course the the game the rules of the game are going to be rewritten when the people who own the game control the rules that you're playing. You know what I mean? This isn't like uh, some some fair thing. This is a a, a totally centralized controlled system. You know, lit with layers, in fact, of gatekeepers and rule makers. Um, as opposed to obviously the 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 spaces that, that we play in, um, do you think, I mean, you know, you obviously wrote about this a lot in an investor update for people who are interested in Bitcoin and crypto. Do you think that this is just narrative convergence? This is a uh you know, a river sticks to help people, you know, kind of come into understand this importance of, of uh of decentralization? Or do you think or are you seeing actual conversion? Are you noticing people who are kind of fed up and saying, this is the last straw with my engagement with the traditional system. I want to kind of move, move away in some way.
0: Yeah, it's, and I think that's why I, I specifically said it remains to be seen what we, the people are going to do about it and what the immediate repercussions and ramifications in the near term are going to be. But, but it is because it reached It's because the event reached such a ubiquitous level. And because the takeaway from the everyday common person was little guy was beating the big guy, big guy called in backroom favors. So he'd stop getting beat by the little guy. Like that was the takeaway. That was like the Instagram meme account takeaway. Right. Uh, And those types of things, uh, you know, what happens this week or this month or this quarter uh, around this remains to be seen, but I definitely believe that it just keeps pushing people broadly to ask more questions about how centralized power an authority that is unchecked is failing the people. And we just see that at a lot of different levels. And those of us that do this all day, every day, we're very in tune to this, right? We've been doing this for a long time. We, uh, our, 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 our sites are, are uniquely dialed in to say, oh, here's an example of centralized power failing. Here's an example of centralized power failing. You, know, it's, you, can, you can look all over the place, big tech companies, Wall Street, uh, politicians, you, you see it in a lot of different places. Um, but, but the everyday person doesn't really think like that. Um, but when events like this bubble up to that degree, you know, some percent of the everyday people walk away from that with this new idea implanted. And it's this idea that power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And it it is incumbent on all of us that are dedicated to this ecosystem and to this technology to help those people understand how decentralization has the potential to deliver on a better solution.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I think, And I think you can make the argument, too, that this was almost cascading failures of centralization. You know, you have kind of the ability for a small number of institutions to be short, you know, 140% of a company's stock into... Uh, You know, a a platform that everyone's using because theoretically it's free and easy has the ability to or the mandate to because there's another centralized actor who has control over setting the, you know, the, the kind of margin limits or whatever. You know what I mean? It's like these layers and layers of centralization that just break. In fact, in some ways, the only... The only part of this chain that didn't break, if you were one of those investors, was Reddit, who stuck up for them and said, "No, they're perfectly within their terms of service to be doing this." Uh, but even with that, you know that this is—it's becoming—it's going to become a speech issue too when it makes it to the government. Around, are these people allowed to talk on social media about about what they what they think? You know, like is that a, a, an okay behavior?
0: I'm not gonna lie; I'm not that hopeful. I don't know. I'm not all that hopeful that that much, this much is going to like come out of the, you know, like what's, what the hell's Maxine Waters going to do?
1: Of course not. No. Yeah. In fact, I, I'm, I'm more, I think that the most, um, there are indications that the sort of, you know, the squad or whatever, the AOCs have a a sense that there's economic injustice by these people being not able to access markets in the same way. And that actually is the key problem. It's one of the more positive uh, glimpses that I've seen that, like, you know, the problem oftentimes I've found with uh, the sort of Investor protection mindset is the same problem that happens with global philanthropy. And there's this great quote from a woman named Jane Addams, who was one of the first, first people. She basically invented uh, homeless shelters, more or less, in the US, but like women in the 1890s in Chicago who, you know, needed an abortion could come to Hull House where she started. And she was a total pioneer. And it wasn't, you know, they weren't turned back to their, to their parents and stuff like that. And she wrote once: the problem with philanthropy is the unconscious division of the world into the philanthropists and those to be helped. And I think sometimes when it comes to investor protections, it's the unconscious division of the world into the people who can handle assets and the people who need to be protected from themselves. Mm -hmm. And I think that what I want to see is are we, is is a, a kind of up and down the line Democratic administration going to fall into the trap of investor protection means protect them from themselves, or are they going to have a more complex view, you know, where they run and say like, investors need to have, uh, you know, they, they, they shouldn't be able to be kind of unilaterally shut out. And by the way, we should be reevaluating accreditation. Accreditation is important, but why can't people take a test? Obviously that's something that's in the works now, you know, but it's like, there, there's a, there's a path from a sort of left mindset that doesn't lead to a kind of paternalistic patronizing version of investor protection. I'm skeptical that we'll get there because it's so much easier to view it in the same tired way of kind of protected from themselves, protected from, the big bad, you know, money on Wall Street, kind of a thing. So I would, I would say, I share your skepticism. It's just the glimpse that I've seen from a couple of the folks that you wouldn't historically think were kind of like allied with perhaps the position that we would take, seemingly yeah. getting it at least on a kind of a, a first level.
0: Yeah, um, <laughs> you know, it's kind of page one, top of the fold of the SEC's mandate to protect retail investors. And have you, have you dug deep enough to arrive at a conclusion about the, the kind of uh, clearinghouse VAR spike issue that Robinhood had and how that led to, at the absolute peak of the short squeeze, a single day where you could only sell and could not buy? Like, have you have you managed to like put those two concepts together, or, or is that kind of one of these things that needs to get shaken out? In, in,
1: in various- I think that's exactly what needs to get shaken out. Was okay. this, was this, I mean, and I'm interested in your take on this too, but I think this is the central question. And I like, it may be too much to hope for this level of sophistication in a, a congressional hearing whose entire purpose, yeah. Yeah, whose entire purpose, as we've seen over and over in the crypto and Bitcoin space is really just for people to get their five minutes to score a soundbite for their constituencies, you know? Like, I, I don't think it'll get to this level, but I feel like the question is, Was this just business as usual in an extreme situation where the collateral requirements were completely the same for this set of assets, the the DTCC didn't do anything weird, you know, it just was an extreme situation, that's one thing if on the other hand there were a, there was a rapid increase from again a centralized decision maker that raised collateral requirements unilaterally on a very specific set of assets that feels like a very different conversation and then the conversation is who's on the phone with whom during that time you know and by the way are they talking about the 3.4 billion dollars that Robinhood raises the next fucking day. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I, at the like I am I I hate conspiracy theories, but like when you have uh you know these extreme situations followed by a company raising at seemingly a, a huge discount, you know, with incredible incentives more than it's ever raised before, there's some combination of um either complete uh, you know, incompetence is the best we can hope for to something much more nefarious on the other side. But I think that, that the question of those requirements and whether they were changed at the last minute and who had the authority to do so and how were, how were they acting, that feels to me like the most important pieces of this, you know? Yeah. What's your take?
0: I, I agree with that. I've, I've seen, you know, we've seen this movie too many times before for me to be <laughs> that hopeful that that much of the truth is going to come out or that, uh, yeah.
1: No, it'll be it'll be like, you know, uh, whoever the next Andrew Ross Sorkin is, he's probably going to come from Bitcoin. He'll write a book about this like five years from now. Uncover the truth, you know, like it'll be some murky combination of the authority that this centralized institution was given. Plus, like some pressure, you know, organized around it, like five people who have the power to make these phone. You know what I mean? Like some massively complex thing, but probably what we'll get. I mean, here's the real frustrating thing almost no matter what quote-unquote resolution we get in two weeks, the damage was done. The damage was done the second it happened, you know? And when it comes to these sets of people's lives, and I think to your point, the point that you're making, or at least the point that I heard, was that the the this is similar to bankers not going punished in the Obama administration it's not about what people do with that feeling the week or even the year after it's what the the kind of psychological legacy of seeing that yes. is you know and i think that's where we this might have much longer term ramifications than just you know whatever we hear in a hearing in a couple of weeks
0: yeah, yeah and i think that's i, I think it, that overarching part is the most important part so in like in some way I'm going to be curious to know like what the outcome is with the hearings and things like that. But, but the, the, the main point I I think has been driven home and put into people's minds. uh, That is this continuation of the trend that's been in place for quite some time is in, in, you know, and is in in increasingly becoming the zeitgeist of our time and crypto and more broadly, just decentralization uh, stands as the technological platform that can has the potential to drive societal change for the good, to drive solutions directly at this sort of thing. And uh, that's what I'm most excited about. I, mean, I feel bad for a bunch of regular folks that lost money, uh, you know, but, but it's, it, it, it is just bigger than that. And we need increasingly more of that, more egregious uh, failures of power to motivate people to insist on uh, a change.
1: So let's, let's shift gears a little bit. Let's take, take that uh, section up. So obviously you were talking about kind of uh, May, June, July of last year, new LPs coming in who are like had one of those moments, those moments of realization based on what they were seeing. What have the last couple of months been like? December, January, Bitcoin starts to run up. There's a narrative around institutionalization. Obviously, like every month you keep track of the ridiculous number of events that show more dominoes falling, you know, onto the space. Like you're kind of in the, you have a front row seat to this, you know, all these sets of people that you've probably been talking to for three. Years, all of a sudden, getting getting on the on the bus. What has that been like? What have you been hearing? What have you been seeing in terms of you know is this institutional you know institutions rushing in narrative driving the the price the the correct narrative for looking at it? Is it more complicated? Is there another set of people you know coming in like basically? What's your kind of read on where these institutions are vis a vis Bitcoin and decentralization technologies as we roll into twenty twenty one?
0: Yeah, I I mean the. From from an institutional capital flow perspective, and you know, listening to Ross Stevens at MicroStrategy yesterday would would you know he'll give you even a you know much more better informed opinion uh, or view than than me. But you know, some north of ninety percent of the interest level from institutions is going is going to BTC, and uh, you know, there's some some sort of stub piece that's, that's left over for, you know, ETH and, and specifically DeFi. And the torrid pace of positive news events over the last, you know, 120 or so days, you can just sort of uh, sum all that up by saying the removal of career risk. That's, that's how I think about all that stuff. And you just can't discount how important that is when you get to investment committees at institutions or just you know ultra high net worth individuals that are slow and cautious and you know think that all this stuff is new and unproven and this that and the other and and just it started with Paul Tudor Jones and then kind of the PayPal domino fell and the Stanley Druckenmiller domino fell and we uh, started getting more and more open interest on CME and, uh, they shut down or, or, you know, to a large degree took BitMEX away from its role in price discovery also took Huobi and OKX, uh, their role in price discovery was, was meaningfully diminished. And Brian Brooks is out here cranking through all kinds of (laughs) positive regulatory updates. um, and here comes One River and Ruffer and uh, you know Guggenheim. And here comes the chorus of sell side research, uh, Wall Street sell side research. And then here comes BlackRock, and all all of that is just the guy, the 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 junior guy at the institution that's been waging a two three year guerrilla grassroots campaign internally to get some Bitcoin exposure into the book. And he's got one senior guy that he managed to convert over to his, his way of thinking. And now they're waging this grassroots war together to figure this out. And this is happening all over the place, it's been happening all over the place. And now all of a sudden all those things happen in a, in, in, you know, just in a very short period of time and now they can get there and the, the, the rails to get involved are institutional grade in their safety. The regulatory clarity, uh, we've removed a lot of that. Um, even the, the outlook for, you know, the big, bad, scary U.S. government is going to shut this thing down. That whole thing looks like, okay, Cynthia Loomis got put on the Senate Finance Committee last night, so, uh, you know, Visa is running headfirst at this thing. PayPal's running head first at this thing. Mass Mutual, insurance company, older than the light bulb, hundred million dollar Bitcoin position, took a minority interest in NYDIG. Like it's, it's uh, you're, you're knocking off a lot of those things. And so that, 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 that puts us in a position here where uh, the removal of, of that career risk, it does not have a, that's not a linear effect. That's a, that's a sort of tipping point, uh, super linear type of effect in terms of capital flows. And, and, and it's my expectation that, that that's going to continue.
1: Many investors want to be a part of the next bull run. Others seek to build their dream home, finally launch that startup, or fund their education. Let's talk about kind of the the walls of worry we're we're climbing now with that because I think that I think that you're right on. I think that it's not a linear moment. And I think there that's trade has left the station to mix metaphors. But of course, anytime this starts to happen, anytime there's a new bull run, a whole bunch of new FUD competes for supremacy, right? It competes to be the thing that the people who want to sound smart not being into the thing say. And uh obviously we've we've kind of you <laughs> I think you went point by point in your last letter. Refuting one set of uh, of kind of emergent fuds, um, obviously Mike Green, whose work I really respect uh, around passive, or you know have have spent a lot of time on. Used, used to, yeah, I know. And <laughs> tell me about it. Has has just like decided to wage war on that, like you know, like didn't want to be on a podcast except like Hidden Forces for like three years and then decided to do, uh, you know, this puff show with Eric Townsend into, you know, at least a good show with Nick Carter uh, into this, you know, whatever pomp debate, Um, you know. So I guess what are you seeing, you know, uh, which of the FUD that is being interjected is the most relevant in the context of, you know, you're actually seeing, not necessarily relevant because you think it's correct or anything like that, but that you're seeing repeated most often that's coming up in your conversation that's actually kind of surprising to you.
0: Yeah, so the the first thing I'll say about that is that this tether thing, this medium post by an anonymous author, this was the, the thing that the most LPs reached out to us about by a country mile. And it wasn't just our investors that were asking us about tether, sending us a link to this Medium article, again written by an anonymous source. Uh, it, it wasn't just that, but I was getting, you know, normies that were texting me, you know, got you know guys that have a couple thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin, and they're just sending me this, I, I, you know, you'd send me this link. And in my head, I'm like, is this the first time you're ever on Medium? Was to read this guy's anon? you know, you know, tether FUD. And so, so, so that thing did reach like, you know, I, I kept calling it a FUD hurricane or a FUD tornado and it did reach this fever pitch. Um, and I get why, because uh, it's it, you have on one hand tether that is not very transparent and has definitely done plenty of shady stuff in the past And you're forced to fight that with like situational evidence. And, uh, that's just, that doesn't make one. That's not bite sizable to try and unpack those two things against each other. Like, it's like, you could do an hour long podcast just on that. And you could wheel out Dan Maticheski and you could wheel out, you know, a bunch of other folks and, uh, uh you know, you could just talk through a, a, a lot of the different give and takes, but it was, it, it makes it hard to push back against, but like, like this, like, for example, the situational evidence I tell, you know, that I like to bring up is that uh, the New York AG, you know, that investigation was made public like April, 2019. And uh, a year later, you know, and it's ongoing and it's dragging along this, that, and the other a year later uh, tether issuance explodes and you go from you know 5 billion market cap of tether to like 30 billion market cap of tether uh, over the last nine months of, of, or so of last year or uh, less than that actually. Um, and how, if, if the whole thing is a Ponzi and it's under the microscope of the New York AG and you're just telling me like they just somehow ripped another twenty billion of completely fictitious money uh, and, and, and tethers with no backing. Like it's just I I, I struggle with that one. Um, and and if you if if you listen to Paulo and the and the tether or Bifinex general counsel, you know they went on Peter McCormick's podcast. They've done a couple other podcasts, and you listen to these guys. Dude, These do not sound like guys that are worried about going to jail or worried about this whole thing shutting down. I mean, Paulo is sitting there telling you that, like, they're promising increased transparency this year. And they're talking about how excited they are for, you know, the rest of this year in terms of new business opportunities and things like that. Like, you're just it's just not adding up to me that there's some. Uh, closet full of skeletons and Mike green has managed to, to, to kind of uncover that. And this whole thing is, is, is about to come come apart. Like it, it um, it seems way more likely to me that the outcome is that they're going to pay some, you know, fine. It's going to be some real number and then uh, but no, certainly not enough to keep them, to put them out of business. And then they're going to continue on as doing business more or less as usual. And, and, and one of the things I remind people about this of the, you know, $25 billion of new tether created while being under the microscope of the New York AG. The other thing is that there's been 256 ether addresses that have been blocked, uh, uh, tether ether addresses that have been blocked just over the last handful of months. And that's up from like essentially zero uh, a year ago. And what it's, and look, dude, the, the the tinfoil hat comes on really quick here but like wouldn't it make sense that uh the u.s government just wants to make sure that it's knowing exactly what's going on on the tether network and they're allowing it to run and uh uh you know create new tether and they want to make sure that it's backed and that there are dollars in the bank account but in the meantime, they're tracking all this tether flow and figuring out where the bodies are buried for capital flight and illicit activities and, and this, that, and the other. And um, you know, is tether a risk? Absolutely. Is there a chance that there's a very bad outcome from this New York AG case uh, uh, that, that significantly you know, hits the price of Bitcoin? Yes, there is a real chance that that happens. Um, but you just have to price all of these things and th- that that is really the overarching concept that I think I, I, I really want to address for a few minutes here is just how to think about uh, all of these different risks that are present for, for Bitcoin
1: so let's let's expand that because again, I don't want to drag into tether. People have heard me talk a lot about my my thoughts of it uh I've been resistant to doing a full show on it because of kind of the same same feelings that you've had and um and also just kind of i don't know there's just so many transparently clear things to me that are uh that are holes in the this is a systematic risk that brings down Bitcoin and the whole price of Bitcoin is just based on tether manipulation but Um, the idea of pricing and risk of these different FUDs. So that's your kind of big thesis. It's almost like, uh who cares like you know it's more like instead of it being sort of a clear reject or accept it's more like what do you think the outcomes of these go- are going to be are there other versions of this that have come up so i mean a- a- among this list of things we're seeing is a lot of people who are uh, diminishing bitcoin's scarcity because something else is inevitably going to replace it as one and there's kind of all this set of of different things but you know i mean how do you how do you kind of as you're talking to these lps who might be concerned how do you tell them about how to think about this from a pricing standpoint.
0: Yeah, so the, the, the thing that I find most annoying about a lot of the, the Bitcoin naysayer stance right now is just how disingenuous the approach is, how intellectually dishonest the approach is. Um, from what I can tell, they're, they, 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 this very basic approach to assessing risk in the context of potential returns, seems to be getting completely thrown out the window and they're taking this like all or nothing approach. It's like, because Tether risk exists in some form, therefore I cannot ever own any Bitcoin. And that's just an inferior approach to assessing any investment. And it's like, if you, if you told me that these guys and like, I'm going to throw Ray Dalio in this bucket as well, too. Now, he, he was much more neutral than, like, a, a Mike Green or an Eric Townsend, for example. Uh, he's also, you know, wildly more successful. Um, but, but, but he also seems to have this, like, weird take on not presenting this as a, like, probability-weighted uh, expected outcome. And if you told me that all these guys went through that probability-weighted exercise and arrived at this, like, base case upside case downside case. And it, it, and that just doesn't warrant any deployment of capital in any size. I'd say, okay, like I, I disagree with that assessment and I'd want to hear them unpack it a little bit more, but like, if that's the conclusion they make, so be it. Uh, You know, uh,
1: At least then you could argue with the inputs. You're like, what? What's the? Yes. What's which variable? Which X in this equation is zero? You know, yes. such that it makes the whole thing end up zero. You know. Yeah,
0: that's right. Because like, and I talk to I talk to investors, potential investors, whenever I get the chance, I tell people there's a tremendous amount of risk in this asset class, and and, 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 in, and in Bitcoin. And as soon as you move down market cap for Bitcoin, there's like, you know, it's like that those risk factors get that much bigger. Um, so much risk present in this. When I I spent my whole career in traditional investing, and I stepped into this thing, and I was just like, "Holy shit!" There's risk all over the place in this. There's there's layers of risk, systemic risk, opaque risk, unknowable risk. Whales, miners, Tether, Tether court cases, podcasts about Tether, blog posts about Tether from anonymous sources, counterparties, price manipulation, regulation, exchange hacks. Custody hacks, user data hacks, project hacks, global macro, hard forks, BitMEX death spirals, stop runs, exit scams, other scams, scammers, aggressive market makers, GBTC nav trade unwinds, sim swaps, code bugs, Trump tweets, false rumors, true rumors, tech obsolescence, rehypothecation, forced sellers, legal actions, liquidity crunches, market illiquidity, Brad Sherman's punk ass, (laughs) Satoshi's million Bitcoin, exchange order glitches, bad data, President Xi. And that's not even close (laughs) to an exhaustive list of the risks that are present. But over its history, Bitcoin's up like 11 million percent. So you've gotten paid for the risk that you've taken so far. And there still remains all of those risks. But if there were no risks present... The price of Bitcoin would be over a million dollars if none of those risks were present. And that's the concept of risk adjusted returns. And that's what's so crazy that I seem like, this seems to be so lost on so many people where you you sit there and you take Tether. There's a chance something's wrong with it. Uh, US governments uh, banning it or or regulating or taxing it into oblivion. There's real risk there. you know, a cyber attack of, you know, like say Coinbase gets hacked for $20 billion with Bitcoin, real risk there, Uh, a hard fork. Okay. There's risk there. Uh, You know, uh, this weird thing about if the whole world loses all its internet, like, uh, (laughs) okay. (laughs) Okay. Okay. There is is a risk that is present there. And so if I'm trying to decide, if I'm going to buy some Tesla stock tomorrow, right? There's some chance that I wake up the next day and Elon died, right? Elon, I buy Tesla tomorrow, Elon dies the next day, stocks down 90%. There's a one in 20 million chance that he dies. Negative negative 90% times one over 20 million, tiny expected probability of the expected outcome, right? And, And you just do that with any investment, dozens of risks, hundreds of risks, because also with Tesla, let's say they got you, you buy a share today. They got earnings tomorrow. There's uh, you know whatever. There's a uh, 15% chance that they uh, miss earnings, and if they do, you think the stock's gonna be down 20%. But there's also you think a 40% chance that they're gonna beat earnings, and this in the and the uh, stocks can be up 15% or you know whatever, right? And you just do all of these things, hundreds, dozens of them, and that's how you build a base case and a downside case and an upside case. And you just approach an investment in Bitcoin that exact same way. If you assign 0% probability to all those risks that I just talked about for an investment in Bitcoin, then your base case expected market cap should be at least $30 trillion for Bitcoin, which is the market value of all the treasuries in existence today. And it probably should be something closer to $100 trillion. Because without any risk at all to Bitcoin, it's the world reserve currency, it's the dominant store of value across all assets, and it's the foundation from a collateral perspective of the global financial system. But there are risks, and so you weight them accordingly. And I, it's it's very strange to me that uh, these naysayers of Bitcoin right now seem to have in common that they've removed this extremely elementary Probability adjusted uh, approach to, to thinking about Bitcoin.
1: First of all, I think that officially wins the award for most epic rant in the history of the breakdown. Uh, <laughs> truly, I, I will hundred percent will record that clip of Bitcoin's risks factors that's going on Twitter. Second, I wonder to what extent this has to do with a a, 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 a confusion that is very separate which is the business model of allocating capital versus the business model of being a media personality. Because I think that we pretend that a lot of these folks who are macro guys or whatever, right? Any, anyone who speaks about finance and the economy in a media context are capital allocators and sometimes they have, they are. That's from uh, you know their background. They'll often talk about their investment theses and things like that. But at some point, I feel like a lot of these folks either you know ex- explicitly or just kind of by default transitioned instead to newsletter salesmen or podcasters or whatever. And those are very different business models that reward different things. So what you're talking about in your frustration is the, 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 the mindset that goes into actual capital allocation, but that doesn't go as well into, you know, picking fights on Twitter, which are the way you build on audience.
0: Yeah. You know, look, <laughs> you know, you know, for, for folks that are to- talking, heads for a living, it's like, show me the incentive structure and I'll show you the actions, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're just trying to tr- trying to drum up conversation, uh, you know, look, I'm not going to get mad at, you know. people have jobs and they need. Sure. I mean, listen,
1: I mean, you're, you're talking to a podcaster. This is not a knock on the model. It's more, it's more, I think the frustrating thing is that literally on never, not a single show. Will you have heard me be like, here's my like investing credentials that lead me to these things. Now it's not that type of show. It's not whatever, but I feel like, I feel like historically maybe, and and maybe we'll break out of this, but like, you know, a, a lot of these guys, they act like they are talking heads. Uh, or sorry, they act like they are professional investors who happen to be giving a talking head appearance where increasingly their whole thing is being a talking head. And maybe that's just a function of the fundraising process and that works for them. And so effectively that, you know, it's kind of whatever, but yeah. it just feels to me like that's kind of part of the challenge too.
0: Look, and never underestimate the uh, power of the dopamine hits of social media interaction. And, and, and uh, you know, I think- uh, it goes no further than Steve Cohen on Twitter. Right. And, you know, you got, you got 12 billion bucks in the bank or whatever it is, but like, and those, those, that dopamine hit from Twitter, it's just, it's, it's, it's the siren song. Right. But, 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 and, and I think that that, that does go into, into some of the motivators of this, but I think part of what's going on here too, is that, uh, We've never had anything like Bitcoin before. And I just remind people of that on a regular basis. It is incomparable. It has characteristics of a currency. It has characteristics of a commodity or, you know, uh, a commodity money or whatever. But th- there is nothing else like Bitcoin. And trying to uh, wrap your head around uh, the risk factors associated with it uh, when you just have somewhat of a knowledge of it, because the other thing that happens with Bitcoin all the time is that the the amount of work you have to do to establish an informed base case, it's not a small amount of work, man. It's, It's not. I tell people all the time. I think it takes 50 hours just to understand the basic value proposition. And it's like, Sometimes it's hard to get people to do 50 hours worth of work, especially when it's like like what cryptography, like who knows anything about cryptography, <laughs> right? And, uh, and, and so people end up doing, uh, they do shortcut work, right? And they, uh, and maybe it's five hours or it's 10 hours, but they end up doing shortcut work. And then at some point they, you know, Google problems with Bitcoin, or why Bitcoin is doomed to fail. And then they read some thoughtful blog post about, you know, sort of why that person thinks that Bitcoin is, is doomed to fail or whatever. And, and because Bitcoin is incomparable and requires this, this diverse and, you know, you know, kind of like you know, archaic knowledge set, or just like not not normal types of knowledge to really understand it, it. It overwhelms people, and you know, I would just you know, if there weren't all of these naysayers out here, the price would be a lot higher. So, so all of this does get tucked into the 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 bucket of the wall of worry and converting. The Ray Dalio's and the Mike Green's and the Eric Townsend's and the all the other people that, that, that aren't as public about being, you know, Bitcoin naysayers, like that's just what we're going to do. And, uh, you know, price is going to move higher uh, as that journey continues. And just as a reminder, at some point, one of those major risk factors that I talked about could take down Bitcoin. There is a chance that Bitcoin is Ask Jeeves and that the world has not presented us with our Google yet. And I remind people of that. And uh, you need to size it in your portfolio correctly. And you need to to assess whether or not you're comfortable with a passive position or whether you would prefer an actively managed position as it relates to that. there's a bunch of, re- it's still a very binary bet. If it works, the, the price isn't even going to be close to where it is right now if it works. It's much, much higher. And there are real reasons why it could potentially fail. And you probability weight the best you can or you give your money to somebody else so that they can probability weight it for you with the domain expertise that they have. And then you make a call and you manage risk uh, you know, along the way.
1: It's, uh, it's interesting. I think that the... The like without analogy kind of piece is such a big part of the challenge, exactly as you articulated. Even the the Google and Ask Jeeves analogy, I was going on a rant this morning about this on on Twitter, uh, because it was another one of the the sort of set of, of Mike Green critiques was uh, you know, it's not scarce because another thing inevitably comes along. That's what happens with technology. And these guys who haven't spent a lot of time deep in technology, I mean, whatever, Mike maybe he has. He's with Thiel and whatever, but like you know, they they always point to MySpace and Facebook, right? It's like, well, there's a Facebook. It's like, yeah, but Facebook won 15 years ago, and it has 2.8 billion monthly users. And other things have come up since then, but no one has ever been the the social graph of everyone you know in real life. No one is like can displace them from that. And that's why they have nearly three billion active users every month now. It's you know more than a third of the world's population. Uh, Because the real powerful thing is network effects, not technology. And to go back to your Ask Jeeves and Google example, the other thing that I hear all the time is, how could it have been Google on the first try? And it's like, but it wasn't the first try. You got DigiCash and eGold and all, you know, there were so many tries.
0: Yeah, I like this thought experiment. Let's, Let's run down the thought experiment of Bitcoin's Ask Jeeves and we haven't seen our Google yet. And let's let's first establish that nothing else in the crypto asset ecosystem as it currently exists is the thing that usurps Bitcoin, because I am highly convicted of that. There's, there's very few crypto assets in existence today that can even put up a credible case to be a store of value. And they're all drastically, like, it's like, is Litecoin a competitor to Bitcoin? Like, I mean, I don't know, maybe, right? Bitcoin Cash, maybe. Decred, I like Decred. Decred, may, you know, but it's like, so, so let's say something new comes along, right? And that's the Google, Bitcoin was the ass Jeeves. What would the characteristics, what would the characteristics be? Like, what would be the, the improvement uh, uh, relative to Bitcoin? Like, like I, don't, I don't know, what, is, like, what does that look like? like is it is it uh is it more supply is it less supply is it a, you know faster block times is it a, a different like a, a different distribution mechanism is it uh like you know i don't know is it uh you know quantum computer resistant through some way like, I, like like what are the characteristics that you're talking about so
1: I mean, I think that that's a super interesting thought experiment. I don't think that basically anyone who's put forward that argument has actually thought about that to the extent, uh, unless they say something like scalability, right? Those are kind of the the fallback because it's going to be faster or whatever, you know, more. So I agree. I think that's an interesting thought experiment. I also think that um, you you have this, uh, (laughs) going back to your original point about if you're a capital allocator and you're thinking about opportunity and risk-adjusted return, and you think that there's inevitably, like how many years after Ask Jeeves was Google? You know, how long was the interval? It wasn't that long, you know, that it displaced it. Right. If you think that maybe... Uh, based on quantum computing, for example there 'll be some quantum resistant thing, and we 'll have another Satoshi Nakamoto will come back as another alien to make a different bitcoin later on if if that 's in twenty years. How much value are you leaving on the table by not doing the thing that in the short term proves that this matters? MySpace was an unfathomably valuable investment for the time that it was the thing because it demonstrated the thing was viable, right? If something does displace Facebook, that won't change the literal trillions of dollars that have been made, ingested, and spit back out into other types of investments, other networks, other investments. You know, like, it's just, there. There, there's also, just going back to your initial frustration, the ideological adherence to the possibility that it doesn't end up winning over the entire span of history is kind of leaving people out in the cold of the possibilities along the way.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I I agree with that. It's a strange approach. And uh, definitely agree with you that understanding the, or trying to get a sense of the amount of research that naysayers have done uh, before forming their opinion is important. And I, the thing that was, you know, it was like a very like, you know, et brute moment with Mike Green because <laughs> I was like such a big fan I know, of I know his prior work. But the thing that, that really worried me about all the passive investing work that he had done was that I couldn't check any of that work. And I didn't really have anybody on speed dial that could, could check that work all that well. And in, in a way, he has this tendency to present some of his arguments and, you know, I don't really mean to pick on him, but I'm, you know, we're going to kind of do it anyways. Uh, you know, he, he, he kind of has a weighted
1: st- into it. He kind of waited yeah, into yeah, this fight. Yeah, yeah. I got to say yeah. like, <laughs> he,
0: he, he kind of presents some of these arguments in a way or, or, or his positions in a way that, that do make him very compelling and a little hard to poke holes in, especially when you don't have a really good knowledge base, which I don't in in the minutia of of passive investing. But then he comes at crypto and it's like, oh no, I do have the knowledge base to do this. And if you're going to come at me on the genie coefficient of Bitcoin's distribution based on wallet address holdings, that means you have not done enough work to understand the concept of omnibus wallets for exchanges and if you haven't done that much work you haven't done enough work to scare all of these people out of their bitcoin position because that's like that's not like bitcoin one, quite 101 but it's probably like you know bitcoin 202 or something like that 100% and, and-
1: now that that's that's the family who's like excited about it but they're like hey but like if this does replace it, is it weird that the world's going to be reorganized on the basis of like these super trillionaires that own all of it? And you're like, no, let's talk about exchange wallets. And then they go, oh, I literally had that conversation via text today because someone was fudging, fudding Doge that way. And they've been paying attention to Doge because of the whole Wall Street bets thing too. And I agree. It's, 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 it's not 101, but certainly it's the, the two-oh-one or whatever level. Right.
0: Yeah. So I just, I mean, I think the main takeaway from that is you just urge people to, you know, be thoughtful in considering their sources for assessing an investment for themselves. Look, at the end of the day, you got to make the call for yourself, but, but I mean, this is 2021, you know, the internet has never been more full of information. So the fact that you're going to pull information to assess that investment from, you know a bunch of different sources and people that did other work like that's totally normal i get it but it's just like be thoughtful around that
1: yeah i mean i think i think those uh, you probably share this too it's like i think that we like we would do better with good critics rather than bad critics you know like if if i could trade out the shifts and the you know noriels for like real thoughtful people who had done kind of what you said and, you know, weighted all these things and came to different conclusions. Uh, you know, I, I like watching Dimitri Kofinus's exploration of this space, the guy who runs Hidden Forces, because it's, I mean, Dimitri doesn't have the capacity to do anything but in good faith, right? And so even if he's like, you know, questioning things, it's done in good faith. And you feel like Mike Green is the type of person that you like, if you're going to be a critic, be a good critic, you know? Yeah. Um, it's I, I will say, going back to Dalio for a minute... Cause... I, I read that letter as there is literal no way that we're not announcing a Bitcoin exposure fund later this year. And this is like, I'm smart enough and have been around long enough to know that the way to like make this transition is not to look opportunistic, but show myself walking back questions, being open to different possibilities, still flagging some big picture things in a way that I can then get around them later on. You know what I mean? Like I read that completely, like, not like he's being disingenuous, but like it's, pretty clear to me like i will i would bet a pretty significant amount of bitcoin that there's a dalio bitcoin exposure within the next six months
0: yeah i can see that
1: what are you getting excited about for 2021 obviously we've we talked a lot about this crazy GameStop stuff we hit on like the the regulatory possibilities not just in terms of that but also in terms of other things talked about all the sort of the walls of worry but like you know you're obviously in in the middle of all the good stuff too what's exciting for you right now
0: let me think here So, so we, so guy. over the last 18 plus months, we've had a pretty narrow focus from a strategy perspective and it's, it's systematic models driven exposure to Bitcoin with the the purpose of, of outperforming, just holding Bitcoin. And we, we, we've gotten pretty good at, at doing that. Um, but it has been sort of at the, uh, you know, at the expense of not, uh, paying as much attention and and also deploying like a negligible amount of capital into stuff outside of BTC. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, it has been fascinating to watch the explosion of DeFi and um, the pace of innovation. And, uh, you know, it seems like it has all the hallmarks of a bubble and uh you know the overvaluate you know it's just like you know there's a lot of stuff that's quite bubbly there but it is fascinating to think about what is going to make it out the other side of that and the lasting aspects of And who knows, maybe it's nothing from this generation. And, and, you know, and I'm not definitely the purpose of this is not to shit on DeFi. That's not what I'm doing right now. Uh, You know, but, but it, you know, DeFi cannot, because of the limitations of Ethereum right now, DeFi uh, cannot scale to any sort of, uh, size that remotely makes it usable, like uh, in any kind of like real scale, right? There's, a, there, there's a, a few tens of thousands of DeFi users, and there's probably this like ridiculously heavy power law distribution of those users. And it's, you know, it's really probably like 200 guys that are doing the vast majority of all of this stuff. And that's fine. And, you know, TBD on whether or not ETH is going to be able to you know, migrate over to, to you know, uh, a scale that allows for uh, a lot of throughput for DeFi or whether or not, you know, Sam and, and everybody on Solana and, 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 and Sarum and, and all of that builds, you know, maybe they run at it because they've got a lot of throughput capacity on their deal. But uh, just kind of watching how that develops and, you uh, there, 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 there seems to be, it's like a, it's like a pot and there's a a big pot on the stove and the burners on and you've thrown a lot of different ingredients in there. And I'm talking about crypto as a whole and uh, you don't know what exactly how the stew's going to come out yet. And uh, you know, which ingredients of the pot are going to be the most important or whatever, but like, you know, watching the things that are happening on Bitcoin's lightning network and then watching what's happening from the money Lego side of DeFi and in some of the more governance focused aspects of DeFi and, you know, the importance of, uh, you know, digital ID and like, it seems like there, there's a lot of really cool, uh, Ingredients that are in the pot right now, and exactly how it comes together, and when that kind of comes together, you know, into a product that 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 ends up being, you know, the one that gets sort of transcendent adoption. Uh, you know, that that remains to be seen, but it's it's fascinating to watch the the innovation, and I'm 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 looking forward to continuing to watch it and, and to be paying even more attention to it.
1: I think one of the things that, you know, I'm sure you've done some of this reflecting too, thinking about what's different, this bull run versus, you know, the last one, last time around, the things that were displacing people's kind of attention and that were attracting people were tokens for everything, random token powered networks for stuff that was just out there and didn't matter, right? It was tokenize the world, tokenize everything, all of that energy, even if it's in an asset that you're not interested in or for a use case that you're different, it's all focused on financial stuff now. These money Legos, right? And there's even debates over like, does DeFi the province of Ethereum? It's obviously associated with it closely now, but it's there's a concept underneath. I mean, to your point, the Solana community is obviously hard charging at it. A huge portion of the total value locked in DeFi is locked in wrapped Bitcoin. You know, like these, it, it's, it's a, it's financial primitive. I mean, I I think about it a lot of times. It's like this primordial stew of raw capitalist experiment that because of the, because like, I think that we should be so grateful that the UI is so bad that it keeps people from wandering in the doors, you know, it's like this impenetrable nightclub. And because of that, it gets to be the weird experiments where even if if DeFi torched itself to the ground right now, all 32 billion or whatever was locked, they'd probably just start again tomorrow. You know what I mean? It's like, it's, 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 it's people who all know the stakes of that money. And I think that's a really, I think that's one of the most optimistic things about it having the chance to evolve into whatever the hell it's supposed to evolve into.
0: Yeah to completely agree with that.
1: Um, Travis, man, well, I've kept you for a while. I really appreciate your time. I always love talking to you. Uh, uh, any final thoughts before we, uh, I, I let you hang out in LA and do your thing? <laughs>
0: uh, no, th- thanks a lot for having me on. I uh, always enjoy talking to you. I, I, I try not to do these things when I don't have something specific to say. So, uh, and it's, it, you know, it's not all that often that I've, I've, I've got something uh, sp- specific to say, but, um, you know, look, we're in an incredibly exciting time for all this. And, um, it, it, you know, this beginning of, of, of 2021 uh, on the back of, you know, the year that was 2020 that for a lot, you know, for a lot of people was the most challenging year of their lives. And this new year brings hope. Uh, You know, even if we have had a bit of a rocky start in some cases um, and it's, it's, it's hope for change and change requires action. Uh, The world can only be grasped by action, not by contemplation. And action requires, the motivation to demand a better way and the willingness to push for it. Motivation and willingness come from inspiration and that's where we find ourselves. And our ecosystem is intimately involved in it, uh, in in this place that we find ourselves amidst this inspiration to find the willingness and the motivation to move to action and call for a change that leads to an improvement Uh, over the way things are right now. And man, I'm here for it. I'm here for it now. I'm here for it the rest of this year. I'm here for it the rest of my career.
1: Amen, brother. There are so many parts of that conversation that I could spend hours unpacking, expanding upon. But I think just to wrap up really briefly, I want to go back to Travis's point about remembering just how unique this moment is just how unique a phenomenon Bitcoin is, how unlike previous financial moments, previous technologies, it is something entirely new and unto itself. And the consequence of this, of course, is to be patient, to take the time to help people who are engaging with good faith in exploring and understanding it. Travis does that day in, day out in his day job, and I appreciate him spending some time with us to do it today. Anyways, guys, I hope you enjoyed that interview. I'm pretty sure you probably did. Until tomorrow, be safe and take care of each other. Peace.